Hi, this is Mike Spivey of the Spivey Consulting Group. It's Tuesday, August 28th, and this is part two. It might be the last part, and I'll get to why that is in, in very quickly. But part two in our series of whether colleges, universities, and law schools will be open in the fall. Before I sort of break the news, because we do think that all three of those entities, colleges, universities, law schools, are very much moving forward and tipping in a certain direction. But there are two disclaimers. The first disclaimer is there could be a spike, and there could be a spike in July or August that would change the whole game if there were a spike right before people were to report to campus. The second disclaimer is that public health officials have the final say in this. So despite the intentions of universities, colleges, and law schools, those intentions could be overridden by public health officials. But let me get to the news, which I think is, is important for a lot of people to hear, important for you know their state of mind and, and the uncertainty that's been existing over the last few months. The news is this. Just about every college, university, law school we've well, in fact, every college, university, and law school we've spoken to, we've spoken to chancellors, presidents, provosts, deans. They plan to be open on campus. We do not know of a single university other than Stanford who mentioned that they could do something like pushing the semester back. We don't know of a single university or law school or college that has any plans, obviously they have backup plans, but all of their intentions are to be open in the fall. And we'll get into the why. You can shut the podcast off if the nuances don't matter to you. I think they should. I think the nuances from both the university perspective and the medical perspective should matter. They have noted that there could be a real spike. You'll note that there's two graphics on our blog attached to this podcast. One of those graphics uh, provided to us by retired General David Petraeus, which I believe he got working with Morgan Stanley, is the most recent projection of a recurvature, which projects in mid-November. The fact of the matter is, even if we were to assume a recurvature in mid-November, and maybe that would happen earlier in college campuses, colleges plan to be open. And they, incidentally, they, they haven't announced this yet, but starting May, I think colleges are planning on giving the public their intentions, their final in, in, intentions. We will be open unless the public health officials tell us otherwise. I think the latest dates we've seen are mid-July. So between May and mid-July, you're going to hear what we're saying right now from hundreds of colleges and universities. Why is it so important to them? This is half of the equation, and it's an incredibly important half of the equation. Despite receiving $14 billion from the CARES Act, it doesn't even scratch the surface of how much it's been estimated that colleges and universities need, which the lowest end estimate from higher education experts is $50 billion from the, from the government. There are a number of colleges and universities that would shut down completely if they could not open on campus. The amount of losses they receive from closing early, and colleges, keep in mind, colleges and universities were some of the first entities to close early. The amount of losses they receive from just discounting tuition and room and board is staggering. Staggering in aggregate when you look at the sum total of the higher education, but when you look at individual colleges relative to the tuition dollars they receive, which most are tuition revenue dependent, most are not Harvard and Stanford with endowments in the multi-multi-billions of dollars. Their losses are not sustainable. They're not even sustainable for two semesters online. The number of people who would be potentially laid off if things were to be postponed, pushed back, 
3 million people are employed in the higher education sector alone. The higher education sector in 2017, 2018, the most recent data, I believe, put $60 billion of spending into the GDP. So not only are colleges and universities cognizant of how much they would struggle, but also how much they impact the national economy. I would be remiss if I also didn't note that in 2026, they have what is referred to as the demographic cliff approaching them. The demographic cliff is during the Great Recession, people, they didn't stop having babies, but the number was cut by a third. So starting 2026, a third of their enrollment, unless they creatively do things internationally, and that picture has changed dramatically. So the analogy I use is, Colleges and universities knew that they had Mike Tyson on their schedule to fight in the upcoming years. And they were just, without any training, unbeknownst to them, put in the center of the ring with Muhammad Ali. They're fighting two financial battles at once. Not only that, but they are extremely aware of their mission, which is twofold, to educate and to disseminate knowledge, to instruct students into research both of which are much more efficacious when you do it in person versus online. Faculty want to be in classrooms. We've talked to a number of faculty members. Look, if they need to be instructed and given the resources to do this online, they will be, but faculty want to be on campus, independent of their age, independent of pre-existing conditions. They are used to instructing, and they think the most beneficial way, the most viable way to instruct, and they're right, the research backs this, is in person. So you have tremendous, and I mean staggering, financial pressures on on the vast majority of colleges and universities and law schools, which are even more tuition-dependent. And you have a model of education that is known and proven to be better in person than online. There's a almost commitment to the citizenship that colleges feel entrusted upon to you know instruct but also care for the way and we're about to get to this now care for the well-being of students so what is their plan this is where things to me get interesting because it's not what the plan was previously the plan for colleges would appear and there are some outliers i'll give you an outlier there's a charming college in kentucky uh, center it's a very small college about a thousand five hundred students i believe I'm just going to actually read because I don't even, I don't understand it. <laughs> My brain has been too focused on COVID and talking to molecular epidemiologists. But the center plan is, quote, this unique approach divides the normal academic term of 13 weeks in four courses into two blocks of two courses, each six weeks plus two days long. I'll let you all, <laughs> the, our audience of listeners, break that down. So colleges, universities, law schools, and we're going to get into all of them, have sort of different structural plans. They're not going to look the same. They're going to look different than they did a year ago. There are going to be all kinds of mitigation and social distancing policies in place. There will be classrooms with lots of empty chairs. And that's not only just by design, but enrollment to colleges and universities is going to be down almost guaranteed. You're going to have students taking gap years, students not going to colleges, students insisting on going to colleges that are online, all understandably so, incidentally. I understand that side of the equation, particularly, of course, anyone with a pre-existing condition. And I'm going to end this podcast having talked to someone 
who was in critical condition with COVID, who had a pre-existing condition of asthma. There's a litany of pre-existing conditions that could keep students taking a year off or seeking out online courses. There's also international students. It's unknown at this moment what's going to happen three months from now, but to date, it would be impossible to get to college if you moved heaven and earth and every mountain in between. But also by design, colleges and universities and law schools are going to have empty desks. There have been plans for dorms with one floor with students, one floor without. One room with a student, one room without. Dorms that used to have two students will now have one student. That, that will be a very much a policy in place. So they're going to have social distancing plans. If you're a college student, a law school student, you're going to be given a set of policies not to gather more than 10, not to gather in public places more than 10 students. There is going to be testing on a daily basis, at least from some of the schools we've talked to. There's some upcoming in this podcast, less optimistic news, but the medical experts do believe that testing will be quick, inexpensive, and available by this coming August, September. There will be contact tracing for anyone who comes down with symptoms or test positive, and we're going to get into the medical side of of that. And then there's going to be, of course, quarantining. Colleges are not going to send students scattering to the wind or home. That is not the plan. If there is, and they're incredibly likely, I hesitate to speak in absolutes, but incredibly likely there will be colleges, many, that have outbreaks. And the plan is to take those students quickly, put them in specific quarantine dorms, even hotel rooms, give them medical care, quarantined space, online access while they're in those rooms and help them get better. The idea is not to send them home. The idea is to keep anyone who comes down with a pathogen with COVID-19 to keep them on a designated quarantine part on or near campus so that no one goes home and spreads the virus. So that, that's the college plan. What are they not considering? And, and I know, I mean, I, you know, I respect deeply the, the numerous people we've talked to in academia, in higher ed. I'm going to end with a quote from my mentor who I worked for at two universities. So I, I respect that they have medical teams at their disposal. But I, I still think there's a second part of this podcast that we need to do, which is the other side of the story, which is the medical experts we've talked to that have covered some things that at least colleges need to be and should be considering. For starters, when you talk about contact tracing, you're actually talking about two directions, not one. There's contact tracing and there's reverse contact tracing. So if I come down with COVID and I'm a college student, we don't only need to know who I've been in contact with, that's contact tracing, but also who did I get it from and who have they been in contact with? Here's the problem, and you've already figured this out. You can do it quickly in your head at seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. If you're going forward and backwards on a college campus of who everyone's been in contact with, pretty soon you're looking at extraordinarily large numbers of people. There are 50,000 students alone in student housing in the Ohio State University system. And when you start talking about contact tracing backwards and forward, I don't know how many permutations it is or the exponentiality. I do know the, the R-naught of the, of the pathogen, and we'll talk about that soon. But the exponentiality of how quickly one person becomes 25,000 is very rapid. Students can refuse to be tested. We don't know what, what's going to happen, but there will be students who refuse to allow to be either tested or tracked. I mean, you know, Google, Apple are going to come up with these contact tracing apps, but students don't have to abide by them. And then the question becomes, will the college, will the university, will the law school allow that student to take classes? 
I mean, these are problematic issues because what happens? What do you do if a student says, no, I'm not going to be tested? You probably don't allow them to be in class, but then do you allow them to be in a dorm? Do you send them home? If they possibly, I mean, if you can't test them, you don't know if they have COVID-19. If a student has COVID-19, you can't force them in the quarantine, to my knowledge. They have free will. Their parents can come and pick them up. So you can see a scenario where there's a cluster outbreak on a college and a number of students go home. And that's the scenario we're particularly worried about because when they go home, they're going home to their parents and grandparents, sisters and brothers and siblings who may have pre-existing conditions. And that's problematic. We don't know if all students would say, sure, put me in a hotel room. To me, I mean, to me, that doesn't sound that bad with a TV if you're doing well. I talked to David Latt, the lawyer, pretty prominent lawyer and very prominent publisher who I spoke to. He and I were laughing about how that wouldn't be so bad being in a hotel. But if you're really sick, you're not going to be in a hotel. You're going to be in the hospital. Do your parents want to take you to their doctor, to their hospital? What about older faculty? You know, there are older faculty on campuses who want to be on campus, but your students are going to be in contact with them. Per the CDC, anyone over 65 is at risk. There are a lot of wonderful faculty who want to teach in person over 65. I've talked to some of them. I know some of them well. Here's where it gets even sort of the medical argument as far as some of the problems about being on campus get it even a little bit stronger. Per, again, the medical community, let me disclaim that I do. I have no medical background. I'm going to pronounce some words coming up that I will assuredly get wrong. My firm has no medical training, no medical background. Literally, to my knowledge, not a single person in my firm of 33 people has been pre-med. So we are basing this on thousands of pages of research that we've read with who we find to be trusted in the medical community. This pathogen is particularly contagious. It's not, is it as contagious as polio? No. Or measles? No. But the range of contagiousness, the, precisely, is around 1.4 to 5.7 R0, which in terms I would understand <laughs> a month ago before I've been reading so much on this issue, is that the average person will pass on the virus to two to six other people. For comparison, the R0 of the, of the typical flu is 0.9 to 2.1. And that's an issue because a lot of times you'll hear people in the media reference, well, the flu also is contagious and kills a number of people. Well, th- this is logarithmically more contagious than the typical flu. I can't remember what the, the 1917 flu epidemic was, but I still think it was less than an R0 of 6. Ebola was, was 1.5 to 2. So you have a very contagious pathogen with no predators and almost unlimited resources, right? No predators means no therapeutics. I'm going to get to that because I think from what we've read from the Gates Foundation and in the medical community is therapeutics would be a miracle by this fall. Unlimited resources are us. Anyone immuno-naive in the population, anyone who, who doesn't have it, and sadly, potentially, people who have had it. They don't know yet. The optimism is maybe antibodies will last forever. That's not likely. Maybe two to three years like it does for similar coronaviruses. But we actually don't know as of today, to my knowledge at least, that if someone who contracted COVID contracted tomorrow. So let me now bring in the Chinese restaurant study. That's the second diagram on our blog post. This is a real study. This is not a made-up diagram. They, this was from early on in the very beginning of the outbreak. So they were able to contact trace 
one person who walked into a restaurant, by the time the restaurant cleared out, 11 people had it. And you can see in the diagram, the seating looks a little bit bizarre. It's not just like one table of 11 people. The reason why the, the seating looks a little bit bizarre is because the air conditioning ducts mattered. The ventilation mattered. What di direction was being ventilated mattered. So we're not sure yet whether this is just a respiratory droplet pathogen or whether it's an aerosol transmitted pathogen. Let me get to the point, and I'm going to quote one doctor who I spoke to this morning. All dorms will become quarantine dorms. So I said the stronger point. That's what I mean by the stronger point. There's a scenario. We don't know. I, I certainly don't want to intimate or in any way say that we or any doctor knows that this is the case. But there's a scenario where you're looking at not just having quarantine dorms, but you're looking at having every single dorm on a particular college campus or multiple college campuses or many college campuses where the infectiousness is just too much. Dorms are essentially cruise ships, but dirtier. I'm sorry if you're a college student, law school, well, if you're a law student, you're probably not in a dorm. If you're a college student, because I can remember my college days very well, dorms are not as clean as cruise ships, and they are locked at port. And by that, I mean they have 24-7 access and egress, unlike a cruise ship. So people can enter a dorm and you can't, I don't see a scenario where you could test every single person who enters a dorm every single time. So there is a scenario. I'm not saying it's likely or it will happen, but it could happen. And the medical community has discussed it. There's a scenario where any dorm could become, in every dorm could become infected. What about therapeutics? Because you hear a ton about that in the media, right? So at the beginning it was hydrochloroquine and azithromycin and you know, I remember talking to my COO after reading a, a bunch from the Gates Foundation and saying, you know, we're going to hear a number of therapeutics and they're just going to be shot down one after the other. Fomiodine, I'm not saying that right. It's, it's essentially the active ingredient in Pepsid AC. They're giving it to people nine times the regular dose intravenously. Remedivir. See, again, I'm not going to say these words correct. I'm, I apologize to anyone in the medical community, even if you're pre-med or even if you are a high school senior thinking about med school, I apologize for getting all of these terms wrong. My point is this, and the, the most promising is convalescent plasma. As far as efficacy, is the most promising, but there are significant side effects. I think blood clog coagulation is one. My point is, to quote Bill Gates, who <laughs> amusingly we tried to get an interview with, and we posted this online, we received a, at 3.08 a.m. in the morning an email from the Gates Foundation that Bill Gates was too busy. Understandably so, if they're emailing us at 3.08 in the morning, and we, never, we didn't think it was possible. But the point being this, Bill Gates has on more than one occasion referred to a therapeutic as a miracle therapeutic. And that's our belief, too, is that based on the doctors we've talked to, it's not viable to, to expect a therapeutic by the fall. I could give hundreds of examples of why it is the Gates Foundation and many others in the medical community are not as optimistic about therapeutics as if you were to turn on the TV and see the latest in vogue drug or therapeutic mentioned. Let me just give one of hundreds. COVID-19 is, is a coronavirus. The common cold is a coronavirus. The common cold has been with us for over t a little bit over 200 years, and we have yet to have anything that treats it. On the plus side, I will add as a, um, as a tangential side note, 
that the RNA, I mentioned this in the first podcast, it was from, came from David Sinclair, a PhD at a Harvard who's a researcher. And as Sinclair noted, and we noted in the first podcast, these kinds of viruses mutate very rapidly, a thousand times faster than the common flu. What we didn't note, because we didn't know it at the time, again, we're not medical professionals, but what we do know now is when they mutate, they tend to mutate in the better direction, the less lethal direction. And if you think about it, that makes sense. It makes sense because the more lethal strains kill the host, so they're not passed on. So there is good news that if this thing is mutating and there's some evidence that it is, it's much more likely mutating in a weaker direction, which would be, again, great for colleges and universities than it is in in the wrong direction. So I've talked about colleges. They plan on being open, and there's good reason for that. And we've talked about the parade of maladies that could happen, but we don't know they're going to happen. And I'm going to end, this podcast is going to end on a somewhat optimistic note. We don't know they're going to happen. These are just possibilities that colleges and universities should be considering, and they are. So what about law schools? I mean, it's a whole different entity because you don't have dorms. They have a lot more flexibility. They're smaller. They can have different methods of, of educational platform delivery because of the sm- smaller sizes. I think that makes them more nimble. They're going to look a lot different. It's interesting because we've talked to a lot of deans of law schools. This is where our firm got its genesis and, and where we have our most experience. You're going to see probably law schools, well, again, the theme is on campus. They want to be on campus. They want to educate in person. Faculty will likely be in the building, and they will be in the classroom, but they'll also likely be in their, in their offices. Law schools have the ability, unlike, again, a dorm, to test every day. So you can test people entering and exiting. So they will be on campus. The plan for most law schools is to at least record, but also potentially simulcast every single class. So, for example, for international students a class could be simulcast, although that gets kind of interesting because of time zones. If you're nine time zones away, should you be required to attend a class at 3 a.m. in the morning? I mean, I guess if you work at the Gates Foundation, the answer is yes, you're up at 3 a.m. So maybe they'll be recorded. There are some scenarios where maybe there'll be one L's on campus, but two L's and three L's will be online. That again, that helps with the with the mitigation, the social distancing. There are scenarios potentially where Students will have a lot more say in whether they can just choose to take classes online. But law schools, by and large, the ones we've talked to, which again are numerous, are going full throttle with planning to have at least an on-campus component, but with the backup for anyone who doesn't want to be there, anyone who can't be there for international reasons or for certainly for pre-existing condition or symptomatic reasons, to be recorded classes, simulcasted classes online. Which brings up to the second point, what will be the grading like? This is on a lot of people's minds who we talk to on a daily basis. If you'll recall, or most people will know this in the law school arena, but almost every school that was on a curve went to a pass-fail grading because they were sent home early in the semester. Again, we don't think law schools are going to close, at least they don't plan to close, if there's an outbreak. There is now this quarantine plan in effect that law schools, just like colleges and universities, just like we discussed, are going to follow So law students won't be sent scattering home, and unless there's a spike or unless public health officials close them down, we think they're going to be open. We're not quite as certain on the grading yet. We know that faculty want to be graded the same way that they were pre-COVID. 
So, for example, if you were on the Harvard, and this is a very outlier-ish grading system, grading model of dean, scholar, honors, pass, low pass, and fail, you'll go back to that model. If you were on a curve model, 3.1, 3.2, 2.9, whatever the curve was, you'll likely go back to that model. It's a little bit problematic, which is why we don't have a definitive answer for law students yet, because there are going to be a number of law students internationally, which make up a good portion of law schools. There's one law school with, I believe it's 43% of their students are international. Um, there are a number of law schools in the you know, 15, 20% range of international students. We're just talking J, JD, not even LLM. LLM programs, you're looking at 100% international in, in some programs. You will likely be graded on the same curve, same scale that you were graded on, that the school had before COVID. So that means for the vast, vast majority of law schools going back to a curve grading system. I'm going to bring up one interesting caveat to all this. It's not a caveat. It's a conversation I had with a big law firm-wide hiring partner of a top 10 analog global firm, which said that they would actually rather see someone's online grade. Don't Please don't take this and run with it and think that every firm in the world believes this. This is, was just one person talking out loud. But there's a scenario you could see where an online grade would be just as valuable or even more valuable in the new world that we live in than an on-campus grade. My point being this, if you are online, if you're home online, if you're international and you get a grade in it and you took the class online, I wouldn't be afraid to bring up to a firm in a hiring situation that you took that entire semester online because law firms are moving much more in an online direction right now anyways. So that grade will be valuable to them. I know our firm is rooted in law schools first, and I know I didn't spend nearly as much time on law schools, but the fact of the matter is it's pretty simple. They're going to be on campus while simultaneously, or at least through recording, have every class available online. There will be backup faculty members for every class. And there is even a scenario where law schools may share faculty members. So if you're at Princeton Law School, you may get a Brown Law School faculty member if your Princeton Law School fac- faculty member is sick for a week or two and, and can't teach. I promised in a tweet, because I get this question so often, that I would talk about college athletics. Athletics are near and dear to my heart. I have a background in athletics. I don't want to spend more than a minute on this. In fact, it'll be less than a minute. I think that colleges plan on going full steam ahead with college athletics, and based on speaking with the medical community who we trust and based on the research that we've done, it seems unlikely at this time, unless there is a therapeutic, there won't be a vaccine for another 10 to 18 months. Unless there is a therapeutic, we don't see the likelihood of many athletic boards being able to finish the season, again, because of that contagiousness of the virus. College athletes congregate by definition while they're playing in a locker room in practice. So there's no social distancing on a practice field. Let me end on two more sort of upbeat notes. The message of this podcast, in some sense, should be optimistic if you're a student wanting to go to college because colleges are working really hard at figuring this thing out. And problems greater than COVID-19 have been figured out before. In World War II, when winter was coming and American troops had no food supply, they were forced to figure out how to get food to the American troops, and they did. 
it's kind of akin to Cortez coming to America and burning his ships so that they had to figure out how to build housing and, and, and forts and survive in America, right? Colleges right now feel like Cortez. They're not burning their ships, I promise you. They have backup plans of not being open. But they are very committed to figuring out this plan. On an optimistic note, I mentioned I talked to David Latt, who's a very prominent legal publisher, author, who was in very critical condition. In fact, even when I talked to him weeks after he's been, I believe, discharged from the hospital, he was still in a, a weakened state, and I applaud him for giving me 15 minutes of his time. His voice had a cough. He was still short of breath. I thought David Latt was going to say that colleges shouldn't be open, and he basically said that he is eager for colleges, law schools, where I, I believe David went to Yale, eager for law schools to be open. He wants them to be open. He brought up the notion that you might see, you know, regionally, if you're in a hot spot, you could see a scenario where there are a few colleges or law schools that aren't open for because of regional outbreaks. But what David Ladd, who again was in critical condition from COVID, said was he would rather see them be open. And I, you know, I think that's optimistic. I, I would too. I mean, of course, of course. I will end with a quote from Kent Siverud, the chancellor of Syracuse University, who, for full disclosure, I worked for twice, once at Vanderbilt University and once at Washington University. Kent said this publicly in a podcast, is that, you know, education needs a Marshall Plan. To quote Kent, I think as a country, we should have a Marshall Plan that says we need to enable education to start again this fall. Now I'm going to use my own words to interpret, educators want to educate, and the government working hand-in-hand with higher education, they need to find a way to make this work. There probably is a pathway. There are lots of variables that we've discussed that could impede that pathway, but there are great minds at work, and those great minds are talking together, and they're figuring out the challenges of COVID, and the takeaway message from this probably the longest podcast I've ever done is this. These people want to be open and they're planning on being open. There are a couple things that could shut it down, but I would walk away from this podcast saying, if I'm enrolled in the college, if I'm enrolled in the law school, I will be able to be on campus this fall. This was Mike Spivey of the Spivey Consulting Group.